These next three more lectures are going to be on funding your nonprofit and the different vehicles for funding your nonprofit. And today is fund development, and so I thought we'd bring in the executive director of development and alumni relations, Lori Garrity, who you probably might not know her now, but once you graduate, you'll know her. The cool thing is that SPIA does an awesome job of bringing in alumni and people a part of the SPIA's development council from all over the country and all over the world. And it's mainly because of her office of keeping good relationships with alumni. So it isn't just about raising money from alumni, but it's actually keeping alumni connected and engaged. And it helps the students because it gives you connections and networking for jobs. You know, once you graduate, where are you going to go? It's the alumni who actually can play a pivotal role in connecting you to your first job or getting you established in the field. So I'll give the floor to Lori. Afterwards, <laughs> it's worthwhile. Good morning. Yes, I would just say that we think about alums and their time, talent, and treasure. You know, obviously, if y'all are going into nonprofits, you probably are not going to have lots of treasure, but I bet you have time and talent to share with others via students. So it's not all about money. So, how many of y'all are considering a career in nonprofits? Okay, so then why else or would you be in this class? Arts management, later. arts management, okay. And so, arts management, not necessarily going into a nonprofit? Yeah. Okay. So, I am actually an alum. I earned my MPA from SPIA in 2008, and I worked for United Way of Monroe County. Our annual goal was anywhere between two and three million while I was there. Then I moved to Stone Belt. It's an organization here in Bloomington that supports and advocates for individuals with disabilities. Uh, they have an annual budget of about $14 million, but almost all of that is government support, and so my fundraising goal was only about 2% of that. But now I have come back to my alma mater. I'm really excited about that because I love SPIA. I mean, I am in the field I'm in because of SPIA. I was, actually, I came to Bloomington to get my PhD in neuroscience and psychology. That is my background. It's where I met my husband. I love research. And then I got passionate about nonprofits and thought, oh, I need to learn more and came to SPIA for my graduate degree and launched this career in fund development. So y'all have read your chapter on fund development. It's a huge field. There's a whole bunch of things going on in fund development. So I'm just going to give you kind of a snapshot and go through it. I will provide slides after the lecture so y'all don't have to scribble crazily during this lecture, okay? And I love questions. Interrupt as much as you like. All right. I want to start out with some basic definitions. And this is where y'all are interacting. When you think about charity and philanthropy versus philanthropy, what do you see as similarities or differences between those two words? What's the foundation of charity? Where did charity come from? Well, I just like know from the book that it's like, that, like charity is kind of more of a one-time donation and philanthropy is like investing. Charity is really based in the history of the United States and kind of from church, you know, uh, feeding the poor, housing the homeless, you know, that sort of thing. And philanthropy, you're right, is more of an investment. So what is the definition of philanthropy? How do you define philanthropy? Yes, sir. Something along the lines of giving to build institutions for social benefit. 
Okay. The Lilly School of Philanthropy and the Fundraising School define philanthropy as a voluntary action for the public good. And then you can go on from there as far as helping institutions and long-term effects. Okay? All right, so fundraising to me, fundraising is when you really go and you make the ask. Okay? But there's so much more the habits. You know, if I just walked up to someone and said, will you give me $10 to support this food bank? You may or may not, because you don't know anything about the food bank. Or you don't even know anything about me. Fund development is kind of developing the relationships, doing your research, having a plan, having a case. And then fundraising is when you're actually going to make the ask. Okay? So fund development for nonprofits means that there's more structure than just the ask. Does that make sense? Okay. State of giving. So Giving USA for the last 20 some odd years has been doing research in the amount that Americans are giving philanthropically. And last year, for 2014, they gave $373.25 billion to nonprofits. So they also look to see the type of donor, the source of where does that money come from, and then they look at where is it going. By show of hands, and they break it down between bequests, corporations, foundations, and individuals. Now, bequests come from individuals, but bequests are from planned gifts. So they break that out a little bit. So where do you think the majority of that 300-something billion dollars came from? Bequests? Okay. Corporations. Thank you for being brave and voting. <laughs> Foundations? All right. And then individuals. All right. So let's see. 71% of all of the money that was transferred in 2014 came from individuals. Then foundations accounted for only 16%. Corporations, 5%. Corporations, the majority of that is in kind. And a lot of it comes from the medical field and it comes from uh, discounted or free drugs, clinics and things like that. Bequests, 9%. And so if you put together bequests and individuals, your 80% of the money that was transferred came from individuals and households. So when you think about where you need to be focusing your energy if you're in a small nonprofit and your board keeps saying, we need to write grants. Really, you should be spending 80% of your time developing relationships with individuals that have capacity and interest. And then where did the money go? 32% of it went to religious organizations. Tithing, have you all heard of tithing? You know, people who go to church regularly will go ahead and put money in the basket, and that's the majority of it. But over the years, that number has been going down because here in the United States, we're seeing attendance at uh, traditional churches decline. Then you have educational institutions like IU, then human services, and if you look way over there, arts, culture, and humanities, only 5% of this high, smaller amount. And then environment and animals, 3%. Gifts to foundations that are 11%, and you're starting to see in the last five, 10 years, individuals setting up their own family foundations. You're slowly seeing that number increase a little bit as trends in the United States are changing. Obviously, some people were surprised that the majority of the money is coming from individuals. So when you go and buy something at the store, for a for-profit, you pay for your goods and services, the customer pays for the goods and services, and you take that away. 
So, you know, you buy a shirt, or you buy whatever, but you have something for what you just paid. How does it work for a nonprofit? So obviously, when you donate to a nonprofit, what do you get from that? What is the benefit to the individual? Yes, ma'am. A lot of the things that they're saying now is that you're asking for a deeper, more meaningful relationship in the organization, so something that directly benefits you. Maybe something you care about. If it's an arts organization, maybe it's programming you care about. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of it's just asking for a closer to your desire. So maybe you get to be on the board or you get to be on a programming committee or something like that and have a greater tie to that organization, definitely. So you feel good. Right, some of it off taxes. Or... Taxes, there's always a tax benefit. The motivation for giving is oftentimes not tax benefit driven, but that is one of the benefits. How about, does anyone know about Hodge Hall, Kelly Hodge Hall? I mean, there's recognition, right? That person has their name on the building. Oftentimes, you'll see donor lists on the second floor. There's a list of the donors from a certain amount and up for the last annual year, so people know who they are. So there's recognition, personal fulfillment. Also, so at United Way, we have the Vanguard Society, so people gave at a certain level, and we have Vanguard reception at the end of the campaign, and all the Vanguards were invited. So this was an opportunity for people to network with others in the community. So actually access to some of those networks is also a reason to give. Does anyone here donate? Is anyone here given to a nonprofit ever? Okay, why did you give? I feel like I would fall into that repair category. And so just feeling as if I've had good things done to me and I want to give back. Mm -hmm. I was kind of raised to do so. That's the big one is that if you grow up in a household that has a tradition of giving back, you are more likely to give as an adult. That research shows. What else? Like sometimes I just say, why not? Go mm -hmm. and give it. It just makes you feel good inside at one point the day. Do you envision uh, kids smiling or kids getting better yeah, when right. you... So, sense of community can make a difference, <coughs> feeling of empowerment, modeling you know, for children. So these are all reasons that people will give. And when you're in the profession, you want to think about all of these reasons. Because one individual's reasons are not going to be the same as someone else's, and so talking to them and understanding what motivates increases the likelihood for them to give. All right, the fundraising cue, and I'm taking this from the fundraising school. And this helps to envision this being a development program, a fund development program. So there are six sides, and so all six have to work together to have a successful fund development program. So we have management, institutional readiness, HR, markets, vehicles, and then those dynamic functions that change, continue to change. Don't worry, I'm going to provide these. But just to give you an idea of what's in this fundraising cube and the things that I have to think about and sort of manage in our fund development program. But institutional readiness, do we know what we need? Why do we need it? So we regularly raise money for scholarships because we know that so many students need financial aid. And so that's one of the things that we talk about all the time. Markets, where are we going to go to raise money? So from individuals, corporations, the government as well. You know, governments have grants and things that they want to change. Dynamic functions, our case, case for support. Have you all heard that term, case for support? Yes? 
but your case changes and your needs change depending on what your campaign is for. And so making sure that you have a well-defined case for support. Okay, this is fund development, fundraising cycle. There are, I think, 14 steps on here. And you're starting with examining the case. It goes through by analyzing the markets. Where are you going to be asking for the money? the support, defining your objectives, making sure you have people involved, volunteers. So Dr. Fulton, we have alumni board, we have alumni board, we have a distinguished alumni council, we have dean's council. Those are volunteers that help us make connections to support the school. And it's with time, talent, and treasure. It's not always just treasure. Evaluating the markets, do they have the capacity for what we're trying to raise? So who knows about the bicentennial campaign that IU is currently in? Do you know what IU is trying to raise? IU's goal is $2.5 billion by the end of 2019, December 31st, 2019. Now, they looked at the markets, all the people that have supported IU in the past, the potential giving through Giving USA, what's the transfer of wealth going on, <coughs> especially as you have older Americans starting to transfer wealth through their requests, through their estate plans. We can achieve this. And then they broke it down by schools and units. And so I use Bloomington, SPIA, we have a goal. They have a goal up at IUPUI, the med school, the law school, Kelly. Everyone has a little piece of that pie that will go up to 2.5 billion. We should make it. A lot of it is student support, uh, endowed chairs, things like that. Select the fundraising vehicle. So, what are the ways that you could ask for money? Art. Art? You're asking for money through art? Something more. What does that mean? We can hold an event or something. Ah, through an auction or something like that. An auction so you can have an event. How else? Emails. Emails? Direct marketing? <coughs> yeah, I see a lot of that. Websites, social media, maybe? Social media. Mm -hmm. uh, give now buttons on a website. Yes? One on one asking environment, so cultivating individual relationships. Mm -hmm. Cultivating and then making the ask. That's a lot of what I do. Direct mail is a big one. So there's multiple ways to ask, and depending on what you're trying to do, you have to evaluate which fundraising vehicle is appropriate. Grants as well. You could be writing a grant for something. So you get through all the way, and if you notice, solicit the gift. So you have gone all the way around here before you actually solicit the gift. That's all, this is all planning. And then after you solicit, you steward it, and, you, and then you renew the gift. You examine the case, has, have their interest changed, or have they been uh, refined, and you go through it again. This is the ideal world. But if you're working in a small nonprofit and you're the only development person and you're basically raising salaries for the people who work there, you might have to adjust a little bit, but you want to at least consider all of these. So I talk about what the ideal is and what it's like boots on the ground. Any questions? Is this a surprise that there's so much planning involved? What's IU's plan then? So if you're doing through now to 2019 for the What's the plan for renew then? Because I'm assuming a lot of these things are going to come from, to get to your 2.5 billion, you're going to have your smaller alumni donors and stuff like that, but you're going to get a lot of requests or state and large dollar amounts. There's not necessarily a renewal rate for that. No. So what is the fear with the after rate? The so an estate plan is the final gift. 
and you file a gift because the individual has passed away. Since they have passed away, you are not going to renew a gift. But there's all those other people in the middle that are giving of their current income, that if you are developing and renewing and stewarding those gifts, in the future, you hope to be part of the estate plan. Or continue large, continue large gifts. Okay. People talk about the pipeline, so you're always having donors coming in at the lower levels. You identify who has capacity in those groups. You steward them slightly differently than you do steward those that have smaller capacity of giving but have capacity in other ways, like the time and treasure. And so then you're always kind of moving them up. So it doesn't just completely stop. Really good question. So this is called the four-legged stool of fundraising, and it's a great illustration of basically when you're running a particular type of campaign, where the money comes from and what it benefits. Okay, so the first one, the annual fund. The annual fund is the core plan because that's where you get people into the habit of giving and you get them into interest into your organization. So oftentimes those will pay ongoing programs and services. This is your operating budget. And oftentimes people or your donors are giving from their current income. When you're running a major gifts program, and sometimes you will have major gifts within the annual fund, just to clarify. Oftentimes these will be going to special programs that might be trying to start a program that you know, you've seen a need in the community that your nonprofit can meet. And so you want to start this program and you might go to that one donor who has been very loyal who has capacity and talk to them about this is a program, this is the need, would you start help us? Because these are larger gifts, this will come from income, their current paycheck, but also their assets, their investments. Then you have capital campaign. Oftentimes people think of these as bricks and mortar. That's the old way of thinking about it. So now it can be endowments. So right now we are in a capital campaign and we are raising money for endowments to endow scholarships, fellowships, chairs, things like that. And because these, the large gifts in a capital campaign are gonna come from people's assets. Now, I have made a gift to the Bicentennial campaign and it came my husband's and my income, but it was not like a $250,000 gift because that's not my capacity. But your larger gifts, those Hodge Hall or the Paul O'Neill Graduate Center, those will come from assets. And then finally, the planned gift. And these always will go to endowment and capital. And this is coming from a person's estate. It's really important for a nonprofit to have some sort of policy as to what they're going to do with a planned gift. Because if you think this is the person's final wish to make a difference in that nonprofit, to think that it might go to the annual fund and be gone within a year. That's not much of a legacy. Now I've seen that where a nonprofit did not have a policy. I will tell you most planned gifts you don't know about. Most people have written you into their will and just not told you. It's a lovely thing to get that surprise. It's very sad that the individual passed away, but to have this uh, realized planned gift is a wonderful thing. But if you don't have a plan of how that type of funds should be used, your board or your executive director could decide, oh, well, this is great, we can just put it into our operating fund. But that's not really a legacy for a, for a donor. And as a fundraising professional, that's important to me, is that we honor what that donor was really thinking about and it being a legacy gift. Four-legged stool, it's an easy visual. 
right? These are features that are common to all of them, and this is similar to the fundraising queue. You know, it's like it all comes back together. You know, you establish your fundraising goals, what is the program for it. You identify the constituencies who are going to be involved in that program, your fundraising campaign. Identifying qualified prospects. How are you going to communicate with them? You know, if you were doing a cutting edge, like the guy who's in his basement supporting hospitals' patients directly, right? So his communication strategies are probably not direct mail, probably through social media or email, things like that. Involve volunteers. So these are all the things that you've seen in the previous pieces. It's just, it's the same for all of these things. Development process. So. We've identified the needs in the programs, and now we have to think about the solicitation process. Identify the constituency groups, and so who are they and what are their links to the organization? Are they a volunteer? Are they like the theaters? Are they a patron? Do you have camps, and so they have kids in the camp? So you know, think about why are they linked to the organization? What would be having them come here? Now, is anyone familiar with Community Kitchen? So it is an organization that provides hot, nutritious meals to individuals that are food insecure. You don't want to call it a soup kitchen. Because soup kitchens have a certain connotation from years ago that they're trying to move away from. The executive director of the Community Kitchen is a good friend of mine, and she's like, if you say soup kitchen, I think that's all we serve. They actually serve really good, nutritious meals that rarely serve soup. Okay, just FYI. All right. Well, their patrons are individuals that don't have capacity because they're there needing a hot meal. So then who would they look to? Who are possible constituents for them? One of the first people you're going to look to are the people, friends, family, and those surrounding the people that don't have capacity. Those are going to be some of the people that are most likely to donate. And your next will be the places that gain some benefit by people having a place to go securely. So it's going to be... Sometimes you get incorporation giving at this point because it's going to be places where you don't want either some sort of theft to happen or a decline in personal health, therefore you support things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I agree generally that the people around the person that is food insecure, but oftentimes uh, they either have no connection to their networks, and which is one of the reasons they're at the community kitchen. And then also, oftentimes, those individuals are also food insecure or dealing with other social issues and don't have capacity. So if you're trying to find someone who's interested in food security, just trying to identify people, so maybe through an event. They have a couple different events that they run. They do something like the Hot Chef shows. I don't watch a lot of TV, but there's like the chef competitions on TV, right? So the chef competitions, they run one at the Buskirk Chumley downtown. And so they sell tickets. Anyone who buys one of those tickets, those people are probably interested, probably, but not necessarily. They could just be interested in an event. But that's one group that you would start to maybe touch and see about bringing them in for a tour, see if they want to volunteer. Yes, sir? My friend has actually competed in the Chef's Challenge for two years. And so they're getting people that go to the restaurants that are competing. So they have sous chefs and head chefs from D'Angelo's and Feast and Uptown and all these restaurants, so the people who actually visit these restaurants, then those are the ones who attend and they'll raffle off meals or certain parts of the meal, um, so it's those in the community who 
are aware of the food and the establishments that serve the food, but it's for a greater cause. And then you have a captive audience and you can educate them about communication. Have you been to the event? No, it's this past week. I haven't been yet. I really want to go. It's fun. So they have tables uh, apparently like in the front or on the stage or something. Yeah, cameras and there's like TVs above to show like all the details of what's going on. And the people get to eat, like if you get one of the seats at the table, you get to eat the food that they're preparing. And when they first did this event, it was a hard time selling those seats because they were more expensive. And now, it's like lottery to get those seats. This has become so popular. And that's, I want to go sit in one of those, but I'll never win the lottery. But who they are and what are their linkages to the organization, you might need to build those linkages or kind of start to identify them. Okay, and Jess, this goes to kind of what you were talking about. This is called a constituency model. Pretty much we all use this. This is in your book. So the people at the core, these are the people that have the strongest connection to your organization. Oftentimes, they have a higher capacity to give, or they have networks of people that can give. So these are your board members, major donors, and your executive team. As you move out, the linkages to the organization lessen. And so you have one ring out, staff, volunteers, so if you had someone who's volunteering, there's Monroe County United Ministries here in town and they have classrooms so they provide very low expense childcare and the childcare that they provide is ranked the highest level nationally as far as the type of childcare they provide, but it is affordable for the people who are living in Section 8 housing, which is also exciting. So you have volunteers working in those classrooms. If you have someone that's volunteering that has capacity or might have networks, this person who's been volunteering for a few years, you might say, oh, you could actually have a voice on the board and consider kind of what we're doing as an agency and where we're going and bringing them closer to the organization. That would increase linkage and tie to them, would increase the likelihood of a larger gift going forward. Does this all make sense? As you move further out, then linkages are less. So when you look out here in this ring, you're looking at prospects like Chef Challenge who are going to these different restaurants. If you are Pets Alive, Pets Alive supports spay and neutering and things like that, you might go to the dog park and have and some sort of event or educational thing. Where do you go to find these people that might have an interest in your organization? And then slowly work to draw them closer. Understood constituencies. So sending out information is always good, but you also want to know what people think. And so having a personal relationship is good, but if you have a donor base of, let's say, 15,000 people, you can't have individual conversations with 15,000 people. But you might do a survey, like you have a newsletter, and say, okay, do you, we've just started doing a highlight of a volunteer. Did you like that addition to our newsletter? So kind of getting feedback. How many emails would you like to receive from us annually or monthly or something like that? It's really important though, if you ask that question, make sure that you have the ability to meet that. Because some people will, when you sign up for <coughs> listserv, sometimes they'll say, oh, do you want to get an email from us monthly, every, you know, twice a year or every, uh, once a year? And so you check a box, and then all of a sudden you're getting an email every month when you just want it once a year. It's because they know they should honor and ask you, but they don't have a database that can actually meet that. So just remember, you know, what are their interests, concerns? 
What are their networks? So do they spend a lot of time at church? Are they involved with sports? Who are their influences? Who influences them? You want engaged constituencies, so how can you involve them? So at Stonebelt, they used to do a 5K run, a walk, and they would invite clients to do the walk, and they'd invite volunteers and the community to walk with the clients. And so kind of being engaged and interacting with clients made them closer and feel more engaged with the agency itself. This is another tool that we use in development. And so you might hear LAILIA, so Linkage, Ability, and Interest. When we are looking at donors or prospects, we're thinking about what's their linkage to the organization. Do they volunteer? Do they have a family member that volunteers? What's their ability to give? How much can they give? And then do they even have an interest? So you could have someone that is the parent of one of your volunteers. And this parent has a lot of wealth. You are working at a food serving agency like Community Kitchen. There's a link. The family has ability. But if they have absolutely no interest in food security, you are wasting your time. And your time is precious. It's really important that all three of these are here. Now, ability is on a range, right? So if you are looking for annual fund donors, then people who have an ability to give $50 a year could be, that's just fine and that's perfect because you need those individuals. But if you're looking at individuals that you want to make a transformative gift, then you might need to look a little bit elsewhere. So you have your prospector donor and your repeat donor. Once you get someone, that first gift is the most expensive gift to get because you've had to spend a lot of time cultivating and educating the individual. But after you get them to give once, if you're able to get them to give again, the likelihood that they will continue to give if you steward properly goes up dramatically. And when I say steward properly, what's the first thing you do to steward properly? You say thank you and then you educate. But stewarding properly is really important because what you want is after they've given a year or two or three at a particular level, you want them to increase their gift if they can. So if you've seen one of the direct mail pieces that says, thank you for your gift of $20, please consider a gift of $40 so that we can do X. Because they're trying to upgrade the donor. And you will get donors that upgrade and they will always stay kind of in that slightly higher level. The special gift, that's kind of a stretch gift for a special program. You know, you're kind of bringing them out of what they've been directing money towards. And then finally, the ultimate gift is planned gift. Once you get above this line, the linkage is getting stronger. Oftentimes, these individuals that come up are going to be involved in the organization more. So they're going to be on committees or the board or volunteering. And these individuals also start advocating. So they start talking about the time that they're spending with you, what you're doing, the great that they, the, how they feel being involved with your organization. And then to be able to raise this money, you need to have a strong donor base. So your universe of prospects is from your constituency model. Those were the concentric circles going out. And so for the first time donor, in the fund development, we love pyramids. You see lots of pyramids. And this is the bulk of your donors. You're going to be connecting with them through direct mail, telemarketing, fundraising, and events, internet media, door-to-door. -door. 
The door-to-door -door is uh, labor-intensive, but these others, uh, telemarketing can be, but these others are not too labor-intensive. And so you can affect a large group of people in a smaller amount of time. Yes? From your experience, is it easier to get like 10 different donors to donate like $100 to reach a $1,000 goal, or would it be easier to follow two different donors to get a large sum of like $500? I think they're both the same. It really depends on who you're asking and how you're asking. Because if, um, so the question is, is it easier to get 10 people to give $100? Are two people to get $500 each to raise $1,000. Well, if I ask the right two people for $500, they could both say yes. Or I could ask the right 10 people for $100. If I have done my work and I know who these people are and that they have that capacity interest, the likelihood that they'll give is incredibly high. And I'm a major gifts officer, and so major gifts for IU is considered $50,000 and above. Well, Someone who has the capacity to give $50,000, asking them will be very similar to asking someone who has the capacity for $1,000. Is making sure that you have that connection and the relationship and you know what their passions are. It's just a matter of scale. Like, is it weird like, ever asking someone who's donating money to your organization to ask them to contribute more money? even though they're already donating money. Like, like you mentioned your example, like someone who's consistently giving $20 to another to $40. Is that awkward? Yeah, awkward rather than asking someone, just a new individual to donate that $20, that would be the same amount of money, but it's just like they're pressuring the donor who's already going out their way to give you money to give you more. So um, <coughs> I sort of skipped this. But when I ask someone to give, I'm not doing it apologetically because I'm giving them the opportunity to invest in the organization I'm working with. And they can help make a difference. So $20 might only feed two people <coughs> to come to Community Kitchen. But if you're able to get 40, you could feed four people. And that's four people that will go to bed with a full stomach. And just think about the difference that that's going to make the next day when they have to go to work. Or you'll be able to feed four kids who will then be able to study in class. If you have the capacity to make that difference, wouldn't you want to? My goodness. I'm so sorry. I love this. Because you're having, you're, you are not begging people. You are giving them the opportunity to make a difference, which is important. Okay, any other questions? I'm so sorry to pick on you. Just a comment. If you've stewarded them correctly, then they are aware of what your organization can do. And so they will know even before you ask what $40 compared to $20 would do. And so that's why it's not that awkward. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It would be awkward if the person doesn't have the capacity. You know, these are individuals that have the capacity to be able to give more. And what is the number one reason someone doesn't give? Because they're not asked. That is literally the number one, research after research study, that is the number one reason someone will not give. Because no one asks them. So as you move up this pyramid, the amount of time the development person is involved in, it increases, but also the size of the gift increases.
Okay? And also, though, the number of donors in those places lessened. That's why you have the pyramid. Identified sources and strategies. So this is what we call the fundraising matrix. And on the y-axis, strategies, annual fund, vehicles, direct mail, special events. And then you look at where might you raise the money from. And then you look to see what's appropriate vehicle or strategy for these particular funding sources. An easy one. Would you send a direct mail to an individual? Yes. Yes. But would you send a direct mail piece to the government? They're not going to respond to a direct mail piece. Exactly. But you want to make sure that you're using the correct vehicle and strategy for the markets that you have. Annual campaign. What are some of the objectives in the annual campaign? I did kind of share one of those earlier, I think. So you want to establish a habit of giving so that someone knows I'm going to get that direct mail piece every August and I'm going to write my check for $20. Basis for planned giving. So someone generally, and this is not hard science, but generally you are not going to get a planned gift from someone who has never made a gift before. It's an opportunity to inform them. So when you send that letter, it doesn't just say, it's time for you to pay $20 or contribute $20. It's an opportunity for you to inform them of what you've been doing this past year or the past four months or last time. Highlight a uh, client. Stewarding them. And so how do you steward them? You're saying thank you. Thank you so much for your gift of $20. We were able along, and this is very important. I heard a speaker a couple years ago say this. If they gave $20 or $100, do not say that they had the impact on 20,000 clients, right? Because that's not, it's not proportional. So your support and the support of all of the other donors, we were able to do X, Y, and Z. Because then they're going to actually listen to you and believe what you're telling them. You're developing your donor base, you're getting those repeat donors, and also you're getting individuals to start to renew. And hopefully you want to then, what's after renew? Anyone? Upgrade. You want to upgrade. Okay. This is the profile. 70% of your donors are at your base. 20% of your donors you've hopefully upgraded. And then 10% of the donors are making major gifts towards your annual campaign. Your definition of an annual or of a major gift is dependent on the organization. Here it's 50,000. At United Way it was 1,000. At Stonebelt it was 500. At a very small organization it could be $250. It depends on the organization. So 60% of your donations are going to come from the top donors, 20% from those upgraded, and 20% from that base. So you end up with two triangles, an inverted triangle over the other, and this is basically the profile of your annual campaign. That 80% of your gifts are going to come from 30% of your donors. And it's really, a, it's, it is all about relationships and making connections and connecting with people. So if you don't really like people, I might not go into fund at all. But I didn't say introvert, because there are lots of very good development people who are introverts. That's okay. Introverts and extroverts. All right. The overhead myth. So a lot of times people would say, well, what's your overhead? And people are saying, oh, it's 7% or it's 5%. Well, if we don't invest in the nonprofit itself, the people, the infrastructure, they can't do the job. 
And so uh, Charity Navigator, Better Business Bureau, and one other one that escapes me right now, they came out and said, okay, we have been telling you the wrong thing. You should not be looking at overhead, but solely. Look at overhead, but you also have to look at impact, because impact is, is ultimately the most important thing. Okay, thank you all so much.